Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host... And in today's episode, where we are wrapping up our special Sparta mini-series this December, just in time for Christmas. Today, we're going to be talking about sex and sexuality in classical Sparta. And to explain all about Spartan attitudes to sex, well, I was delighted to interview the one, the only, Professor Paul Cutledge from Clare College at the University of Cambridge. It is always a great pleasure having the incredibly eloquent Paul on the show. He is an ancient history legend. Naturally, themes of a sexual nature do feature in today's episode, so you have been warned. But on the other hand, if this has just piqued your interest even more, then listen on. I really do hope you enjoy. And here's Paul. Paul, they said it would never happen, but we're both here in the same studio. Welcome back to the Ancients. Thanks, Tristan. Great to see you in person. I can almost touch you from where I'm sitting. It's brilliant. In this studio in Cambridge, Sparta is the topic quite a general statement and question to begin with, but it's the city-state that never gets old, that always fascinates us, <laughs> whether it's military or it's everyday life or sexuality. Yeah, well, it's completely right. And a couple of people have written books with the title. One was The Legend of Sparta. One was The Spartan Tradition. And the point is that ever since Sparta was actually something, people talked about it and then eventually wrote about it and then remembered it. And Sparta itself, of course, evolved. And one of the parts of the myth, there's a big mythical side to the evidence for Sparta. There's, as it were, real history and then mythical history. But part of the myth is Sparta never Never changed. Not true at all. It changed the whole time. If you like, change is a constant. But the Spartans projected the notion that one of the reasons they were so great was they very early achieved a consensus and a set of institutions, military, political, economic, which all gelled together. So it was a harmonious whole, which then sauntered on, as it were, without change. No, it changed. It was subject to stresses and strains, but nevertheless, a sufficiently big core of actuality does explain partly why Sparta was so successful. And because people have been talking about Sparta since antiquity, people who are not Spartan, we have all of these sources from people who are not Spartan, how difficult is it for someone like you researching life in this ancient city-state to sort fact from fiction? 
It's a general question, Tristan, which affects all history, historiography, but peculiarly, acutely, in the case of Sparta, for the reason you gave, but for other reasons. The reason you gave most of our written evidence is by non-Spartans, and that goes way back, right back to the 5th century BC, the father of history, as he's called, Herodotus, and principal source, not just for the 5th century, but for earlier centuries, and we'll come back to him talking about sex and sexuality, I'm sure, but also that hardly anybody in Sparta thought it was important actually to sit down and write Spartan history. So you have a couple of Spartan poets, but you have very, very few as it were, commentators or uh, even describers of Spartan institutions until much later. Well, when I say much later, I mean after the great period of Sparta, what's thought to be the period when Sparta's absolutely central, one of the two or the top uh, Greek cities, so 7th, 6th, 5th centuries BC and somewhat into the 4th. So that's interesting, actually, because sometimes when we talk about classical Greece, we think of 5th and 4th centuries BC. But actually with Sparta, it was prominent also before that time too in the archaic period. Yes, we use the word archaic, which makes it sound as if it's old-fashioned. But it means, in art historical terms and then historical terms, the archaic period is a formative period, presaging, leading to, making possible a classical. Now, the oddity, in a way, about Sparta is that its archaic period in terms of time, that is 8th, 7th, 6th centuries, roughly between 800 and 500 BC, was also its classical period, because though it did change in the 5th and 4th centuries, it formed and it established its principal institutions in the 8th, 7th, and 6th centuries, so that its archaic period temporarily was its classical period in terms of its developmental stage. And when we're talking about Sparta at this time, I think we're going to focus in on archaic and classical Sparta, but how big an area are we actually talking about? So in terms of square mileage, Sparta came to control a territory of some 3,000 square miles, which in terms of kilometerage, square kilometerage, is about 8,000. Put it in another sense, Thucydides, a 5th century historian, a bit later than Herodotus, said that the Spartans controlled two parts of the Peloponnese, by which he meant two-fifths. So all Almost half of the lower bit of the mainland Greece, which is separated from the rest of Greece by a narrow isthmus, the Isthmus of Corinth. The Spartans, beginning in the 8th century, exceptionally in the 7th, expanded to control two-fifths, almost half, of that entire Peloponnese, which made that their city, we call it city-state or city-zen-state, in Greek polis, easily the biggest in the entire Greek world in terms of territory. If I say that the next biggest in the entire Greek world, which extended all around the Mediterranean, was Syracuse in eastern Sicily, and that controlled something like 4,000 square kilometres. 
really gives you a sense of that massive area, doesn't it? And if you lived in Sparta at that time, the population itself, not all of the Spartan population were actually Spartan citizens. There are roughly three different types of inhabitant of the Spartan polis or civic territory. The Spartans, and they had more than one name for themselves, they could call themselves the Spartiates, Spartiata in Greek, or they could call themselves the Lacedaemonians because the polis was called Lacedaemon. They are the elite. And so Herodotus tells us that at the time of the Persian invasion by Xerxes, we're now in 480 BC, there were 8,000 adult male Spartans, of whom some 5,000 could be expected and actually did turn out at any one time. So you multiply that 8,000 figure by four to give you the rough number of women, children, adult males who are Spartans, that is the elite. You've got about four times eight, so 30, 35,000 of them. Plus, there are two other types of population. One are not Spartans at all in the sense they have no civic political rights or privileges within the Spartan state. So they don't have a say in Sparta's domestic or foreign policy, which is made only by adult male Spartans. And these are called dwellers roundabout. There's a Greek word, perioikoi. How many of them altogether there were? Impossible to estimate. There were about 50 separate, we would call them really villages or towns, scattered around on the margins of the best land. And the best land, that is agricultural land for growing wheat, barley, uh, vines and olives, those two best territories, best areas within the Spartan state were the two riverine valleys. In the east, uh, the Rotas Valley, in the west, the Pamisos Valley, and the Perioiko, as the name suggests, dwelt round about the best land which the Spartans directly owned and controlled. Now, who did the work? Well, if you're a Perioik, you're, as it were, a normal Greek. You have a wife, you have a family. You may own one or two slaves, not many, because slaves are quite expensive and difficult to manage, and you've got to make enough surplus to make it viable for them to be your employees. You own them, you make them work, but you've got to feed them. And so in the Spartans' case, they had slaves, as Greeks typically always did. The difference between the Spartan slaves and, say, the Perioikic slaves was that they're Greek. And they're not only Greek, they're locals. They were called helots because that name means captives. The uh, sort of way in which they're conceived is that once upon a time they were free, they fought, they lost, the Spartans conquered them and made them their war captives. But whereas in elsewhere in the Greek world, if you were so conquered, you'd very likely be sold abroad. You wouldn't end up enslaved on your ancestors' own land and being bred that's what the helots were. They were the descendants of the original inhabitants who had lost big time in the 8th and 7th century, and they reproduced themselves as a slave community by natural reproduction. In other words, they had families, they lived in villages, and they reproduced. So that's the context of Spartan society as we delve into this topic. Before I ask about the sources and then look at the Spartan educations, you mentioned like the Perioikoi and the Helots there and then the Spartan citizens. 
When talking about sex and sexuality, did the experience, let's say, for a perioike differ significantly from that of a Spartan, let's say, who they were expected to marry and so on? Okay, in two respects. In order to reproduce, you have to have a framework, and the typical Greek framework was monogamous marriage. Spartans did indeed have monogamous marriage, with there's one or two very odd exceptions, which I won't bother you with. But reproduction could also take place outside marriage. So, in other words, a husband could be married, could have had two kids with his wife, and then decide, well, he doesn't want any more kids with his wife, but his best mate is married, and she, the wife, is not producing any children. Up steps the friend, and as it were, by artificial insemination, he acts as the sperm donor through natural reproduction, but the Spartans did not consider that to be adultery. Every other Greek city, that would have been a case of adultery, which was the major crime that could be committed in ancient Greece in a familial civic setting. Whereas in the perioikic villages or towns, adultery would be adultery and the wife would have to be uh, exposed, you know, sent away, that would be divorce, no playing around. If a wife was barren or if the husband was infertile and the couple couldn't reproduce, well, too bad, that was it, that was just the way of the world. And I think something like a of all human couples are incapable of reproducing by natural means. That's one way in which um, perioikic and Spartan marital sexuality differed. There are others, namely what happened to the offspring, because for a child to survive its first year in ancient Greece was in itself a feat. Typically, we think two out of three infants would not make it beyond their first birthday simply because their mother's milk wasn't sufficient, they caught some fatal disease, all sorts of reasons why people tended not, on average, to survive their first birthday. But the Spartans put another obstacle in the way of an infant growing up, namely some kind of test which was conducted. The evidence is very late and controversial, but it's something to the effect that you look at a child in perhaps a water, a bath. I mean, it was said to be of wine. I find that slightly puzzling. Spartans had lots of wine, but nevertheless, you put the infant in this bath, and if it shows signs of feebleness, it doesn't thrash around, or its limbs look slightly deformed, whatever, whatever, then it was up to, it was in, in other words, within the gift of, not the father, or the mother, but senior members of a grouping, and we translate it tribes, families were grouped into various lineages, typically allegedly by birth, so we're all descended from the same ancestor, or we all live in the same village in Sparta. At any rate, the elders of the tribes people inspect this process. The child's just born, it's a few days old, it's put in this bath, allegedly of wine, and it fails or it passes. So that's the first test that a poor little baby has to pass in order to even move on to try to survive its first year, which two out of three typically in an ancient situation would not. 
Goodness, it's an absolutely horrifying story. <laughs> but you did mention that the source is quite late. Yeah. And when you are looking at a topic, let's say like sex and sexuality at the time of Sparta at its height and its rise to its height in the 7th, 6th, 5th, 4th centuries BC, what are our main sources for learning more about this? Which sources talk about this the most? Well, the important point is that we don't have, suppose you're researching that subject today, you do oral interviews, you've got a lot of mass data collected by the state and you've got checks on hospitals. Most people are born in hospitals rather than at home, etc., etc. Well, you have no diaries from ancient Sparta. You have no first-hand testimony of a Sparta father or mother talking about his or her infant and how he, she saw to that infant's upbringing. So every source is external and therefore it's a kind of lottery whether or not historians and biographers who are actually concentrating on major public affairs, so I'm talking about war, politics, diplomacy, it's a lottery whether they should by chance talk about something to do with sexuality and domesticity and rearing of children. There's absolutely no guarantee that they would. With this one, and it's uh, positive for us, exception, ancient Greek sources thought, believed, there was something slightly odd about the way the Spartans treated not their infants only, but the young generally. So in ancient Greece at this period, 7th, 6th, 5th, 4th centuries, there were very few schools. Schooling for what we would call primary and secondary was not compulsory, and it was purely optional and um, occasional. Sparta, and now both Plato and Aristotle, who are very interested in education, they comment on this fact that only Sparta, of all the 1,000 Greek cities that there were, had a public compulsory educational cycle, and mainly for the boys, so mainly from the age of seven. So we do have sources which are interested in getting the infant to the age of seven and then getting the infant male, the now young male, age seven, from seven to 18, which is the educational cycle. So with this educational cycle, Paul, what was the ideal Spartan man expected to be? It's somewhat now controversial, and I suppose in some ways it always has been, but it used to be assumed by scholars such as myself, and I happen still to uh, cling to this notion, that the ideal uh, adult male Spartan, by the age he's 20, he's become a fully-fledged adult and a member of the Spartan army. He must therefore be fit enough to take part in a very large, so we're talking about 5,000-plus permanently in commission a unit, whereas other Greek cities, yes, you have soldiers and they know that if there's a war on, they're going to be called up. But the Spartans seem to have operated as if they were constantly in a state of war, as if they were on alert, as it were. So it's a no-brainer, it seems to me, that Spartan education should be largely physical, but also cultural in the sense of learning obedience and teamwork 
but not emphasizing purely intellectual tasks, such as how to write a good essay or how to philosophize about the meaning of goodness. Spartan mentality and Spartan education would have gone together. They would foster each other, and they would be largely group as opposed to individual, cohesion as opposed to do your own thing, and with an ultimate test, which would be at the point of battle. Can you make it? Can you withstand the enemy? And can you outfight the enemy? And I think it's not only for external reasons. I talked about the helots. There were many, many more helots than there were Spartans, and some of them did not like being helots. They resented the fact they'd been born as slaves of other Greeks when they thought they should be free, like most other Greeks were. And so they uh, periodically rose up, and, and that's a peculiarity of Spartan society, that the Spartans had to worry not about only about other Greeks attacking them or Persians attacking them, but helots attacking them from within. So if the ideal Spartan is raised to have, so at least to try and have those qualities, but was the ideal Spartan also expected to have a lot of sex? Yes, insofar as it was necessary to reproduce the population to maintain the relative strength of the citizen body vis-a-vis the enemy within and enemies without. But in terms of compelled, depends what age you are. So if you got married before the age of 30, so some sources suggest you didn't actually live at home. You were at your peak of potential call-up. So between the age of 20 and 29, these are the elite years in which you're going to be a frontline fighter. You're going to be eligible for the royal bodyguard, which is the absolute, as it were, the marines of the Spartans. And so for all these reasons, you're not going to be allowed to live at home with your wife, even if you have married before the age of 30, which I think most Spartans probably did in their late 20s. But one of the uh, imperatives of being a good Spartan was to reproduce at least yourself. In other words, to produce a son, at least one. And we hear of families of seven sons, which is quite exceptional. But in terms of social demography, we know that for any ancient population to reproduce itself, every fertile woman has to have many, many children because Two out of three are going to die before they're one. Others are going to die of disease between one and becoming an adult. When males become adults, they're going to die in war. And so something like seven, eight, nine births of every fertile Spartan wife were expected. So that means, yes, <laughs> quite a lot of sex in the sense of reproduction. But you possibly had in mind, do Spartan young men who are not married have the ability to have sex? And the answer is very much in two directions in particular. There's one that's forbidden, which is with nice Spartan girls who are going to get married and have children with their husbands. So young studs must not impress <laughs> them and Spartan marriages were arranged it seems as of course was normal in the ancient world but there are two other possibilities one is homo sexuality, same-sex sexuality. Remember, these boys have been brought up in, as it were, packs. 
books since the age of seven. Adolescence, puberty, you can bet that would be a hell of a lot of what we call politely experimentation of a homosexual kind. Some Spartans, possibly as many as 10%, will be naturally homosexual. Sexual, so predisposed to that. And there are cities in Greece, Sparta wasn't one of them, which actually encouraged that. So that they made use of pairing relationships between adults. So gay relationships were incorporated in the army. Actually, Sparta didn't go that direction. It assumed a heterosexual norm after the age of 20 when marriage and reproduction comes in. But as part of the educational cycle, it was absolutely, I think, prescribed. It wasn't optional. It wasn't occasional. Young boy reaches puberty. He's 13, 14, 15. He's then expected to attract, and conversely, a young adult who is unmarried is expected to go looking for a junior partner, so to form a homosexual, homoerotic pairing relationship, which would end either when the junior partner becomes an adult or when the senior member of the pairing gets married and it seems to be perfectly functional spartans were thought to be by other spartans particularly addicted to anal relations and whether or not that was true who knows but the spartans had homosexuality then the third type of sexuality available to an unmarried or married spartan male was of course with helot women. Young women, maybe even very young women, who knows? But there are a hell of women in Sparta working in the household. They're doing the cooking, the weaving, the waiting on the um, wife, who is, of course, at home, running the home. The husband is away till the age of 30. Then he lives at home after the age of 30. But helot women, there must have been tons of them around. And we happen to know of a category of mixed social status. So a Spartan man impregnates a helot woman. The offspring may be raised by the Spartan male if he so chooses. The Spartans actually had a word for it, which was mothax. So you are half Spartan, half helot. You're not a Spartan citizen unless your dad chooses to rear you, to introduce you to his messmates, because adult male Spartans were all members of dining messes. We call them messes for the military reason, like in the army. So your child didn't have to be 100% Spartan, potentially, for them to become a Spartan citizen? Well, yes is the answer to that question, but the number that were liable to become full Spartans, having been born of a helot mother, was very small. It so happens that in the end of the 5th century BC, the 400s, we know of three of that status. And why do we know of them? Because one's Lysander, famous general. One's Gylippus, famous general, goes off to Syracuse. One is called Callicratidas, admiral. So the reason they, we know about them is they're cited in the main narrative accounts of Greek history of the late 5th century. And then a later commentator says, oh, and by the way, these three were Mothakes, so they were half Helot, which actually is what one would predict because 
you know, just exceptionally, uh, people are born and it just happens their parents are not of the right standing, but they are themselves personally brilliant. And there was a scope if the father introduced the half-Spartan son to the group that's going through the age-graded educational cycle. So at the age of seven, here is my son. Yes, his mother wasn't Spartiate, I confess it, but I do have other sons that I've already put through. The Spartans called it the agogi, the rearing, the upbringing. And that's how I think Callicratidas, Lysander, and Gylippus would have found their way in almost naturally. I mean, people wouldn't worry so much if they proved themselves to be terrifically good Spartan material. Because they'd look the same. Remember, the helots are just the same Greeks as the Spartans. They happen to have been where they have been living for generations, even before some of the Spartans' ancestors. So they're in a way more Laconian or Lacedaemonian than the Spartans. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, it is really interesting because was there an overarching feeling in Sparta that almost the population of true Spartans was dying out? 
There was a precipitous decline in Spartan male military manpower. In other words, adults 20 plus, Herodotus says something like 8,000 in 480 BC. Fast forward a century down to the 370s, and there were just over 1,000. So from 8,000 to just over 1,000. Why? Two obvious causes. There was, in the 460s, a massive earthquake which apparently affected the very centre of Sparta, therefore all the children who were being educated in their schools. There was a very heavy loss of life. So that took all that generation from 7 to 18 out of the pool of reproduction for the next cycle. And it's thought, therefore, it would take a generation of normal sexuality to to replace and reproduce up to what the population had been in the 460s. But it didn't, because by the time the Peloponnesian War begins, we're in the 420s BC, so a generation on from the 460s, population is circa three to 4,000. They're getting worried about losing even 100 Spartans who are held hostage in Athens after being captured on an island in just off the Peloponnese. So something's going wrong. Then add to that fighting. So there is a major pitched battle, Battle of Mantinea, 418 BC. And in the early 4th century, there are two major pitched battles in mainland Greece, one near Corinth, one in central Greece, in which Spartans were heavily involved, and therefore there are casualties. But still, why does it go down from 3,000 or so round about 400 to 1,000 or so 30 years later. It's therefore thought that... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are both economic and social causes at work. Now, we have no source that's analytically, you know, we've got no data, we've got no statistics. This is all inference by us. And two factors seem to be particularly important. One is noted by Aristotle much later, who talks about how Spartan shortage of manpower is a bad thing because it uh, weakens the entire system. But he talks about Spartans losing 
their status as citizens because they're impoverished. They're lacking the resources to contribute a certain minimum amount to their daily mess meal. So they contribute on a monthly basis. It's all hoarded together and then doled out at the evening meal. Every evening, Spartans were expected, required, with some exceptions, to pitch up and eat and drink with their messmates. So that's an economic factor. Now, more interestingly, a sociological one, which modern scholars have uh, postulated, that because Spartan wives were, compared with other wives elsewhere in Greece, both legally and sort of spiritually, socially, much more empowered than their sisters elsewhere, that they were saying, look, I'll produce children, yes, but only up to a point. And so either refusing sex once they'd had, let's say, a son and a daughter, or and just not, for one reason or another, proving to be less fertile than their ancestors uh, earlier had been. But for whatever reason, people have suggested there's something about enforced birth control, because there are no artificial methods, of course, available. There's just coitus interruptus or and various sort of potions and which are not effectual at all. So there was no effective artificial birth control. And the Spartan women, therefore, would have been left to their own devices. They would somehow have to have prevented having sex or having being delivered of children. There is one other possible factor, and this is what's called exposure. Remember I mentioned right at the beginning I was saying that there was a test once an infant had been uh, produced that they had to satisfy inspection, that they were vigorous enough in a bath of some sort of liquid. Well, it's not impossible that more of these infants were being deemed to be unfit and therefore that there was an excess exposure. We know there was a place that the Spartans took unwanted infants too, and they would there be left to die of exposure, thirst, hunger, or to be eaten by wild beasts. But we do know the Spartans went in for exposure, and it's conceivable adding that to the economic factor, adding that to the possible birth control by the, the women, somehow or other they're failing to reproduce themselves as a normal population, healthy population would. It's absolutely horrific what you described there, Paul. And I mean, I did think whilst you were talking there, you mentioned how we have evidence of Spartan men having sex with helots and these Mothaks, these Mothakes. Do we have any idea as to whether children born to helot mothers would also have to face the possibility of them losing their child or would they... I know there is the possibility that they become Spartan at a later date or would they have to go outside of Sparta. You would have thought with the amount of helots that are also in Sparta that they would have been able to keep that population continuing, right, but, but no. Well, there is, though, a very powerful cultural countervailing factor. In other words, if you believe that helot by birth is servile, 
then you are contaminating, you're denigrating, you're diminishing your Spartan true blue, as it were, stock by having miscegenation, as they used to call it in the old South in America. So, there's, yes, there's the availability of Halot women as potential, in other words, keeping the population up. It does seem, in a way, obvious on one level. But at the level of integrity and Hellenicity and strength of pure, free birth, Helot women are down there, and therefore they it's not something to be proud of if you can only produce a son who is the son of a Helot mother, or if you're adding on because you're being patriotic and you think that you should produce some more for the pool. There is a law, this is again slightly late evidence, 4th century BC, we don't know when it was introduced, that if you produce three sons, and I presume it means if they got through to adulthood, through the educational cycle, then you were relieved of certain, we're not told what, but civic burdens. If you produce four or more, you're uh, freed from all civic burdens. And then I ask myself, would it be something that a Spartan man would be so keen to do, to re be relieved of being a good Spartan? I don't think so. So I think the incentive wasn't there, but the goal is clear. We need more Spartans. Well, moving on from that, Paul, I'd like to ask quickly, before we go on to Spartan women, about facial hair. Paul, how important is facial hair for Spartan men? Well, some people think it's incredibly important. In other words, it's a cultural denominator, not only between cultures, but within. I'll give you one classic example. Pretty much every adult male Greek, anywhere, whatever society, would prefer not to shave because it's a pain and you have to have a special razor you've got to keep it sharp and you don't have nice <laughs> foam <laughs> to enable you to shave yourself daily anyway point being this the first leader the first ruler of any major greek city or community or civilization to go shaved was alexander and the point about alexander was to make him look as youthful as possible, and as much like Dionysus, the feistiest of the Greek gods, and Apollo. So some of the Greek gods were habitually represented as if they shaved, or as if they never grew a beard. Alexander was the first. After him, it's the fashion. So if you want to be a Hellenistic ruler, 3rd, 2nd, 1st century BC Greek, you shave. If you want to be a Roman imitating Alexander, Pompey actually took Alexander's nickname, the Great, hmm. you shave. So you get um, Augustus, the emperor of the whole Roman world. He's as butch, as masculine as he ideally wants to project himself, but he is clean-shaven. That rattles on until the second century when Hadrian, who is, yes, he's Roman, but he's from Spain, he wants to represent himself and have himself represented as if he's an ancient Greek philosopher, and they all had beards. 
And so Hadrian grows a beard and all the emperors after Hadrian grow beards. Now, go back to Sparta. Facial hair is obviously of two kinds. There's the beard and there's the hair on the top of your head. Spartans cultivated both, but in different ways. They allowed, once the adolescent became an adult at 20, they allowed, in fact encouraged, young men to stop having their hair cut. Whereas wives were typically short-haired in Sparta, so the women that these young men are going to marry are short-haired, they, the Spartans, grow their hair even longer than when they were adolescents. And there are various tales. Why was that permitted? Was it original? Was it what the lawgiver Lycurgus laid down because it made Spartans look more frightening? Whatever the explanation um, culturally, the fact is you can tell an adult male Spartan warrior, even when he's wearing his helmet, because the hair pokes out underneath it. As for the beard, there was a punishment which the Spartans inflicted on bachelors. So bachelors are those who ought, because they've reached the age and status, they're in their late 20s, they're in the army, they've gone through the educational cycle, they must now do their next Spartan duty, which is get married and have children. For one reason or another, they're refusing. And in a way, if you think, Spartan mores, the unspoken or the social pressure of a community like the Spartans would have been intense on conformity. So anybody who didn't conform, well, what shall we say? And I'll give you one example. His name is Dirkilidas. Was he gay? Did he just despise women, hate women, you know, couldn't bear to be in a marital relationship involving sex with a woman. I don't know. But the punishment was, at a particular festival, to have his beard shaved just down one side. And it takes a fair while to grow the equivalent of what the other side was like. So very visually, for a good long time, this guy would be marked out, you are not conforming to the Spartan norm, getting married, having children. Why? So the fact that there are such exceptions is, to me, uh, in a way extraordinary, though I suppose there are always exceptions. But at any rate, um, beards. Spartans typically had beards and long hair. Beards and long hair. And very, very quickly before we move on to Spartan girls' education, because, well, we could talk about this for hours. But what's, <laughs> what's this with no moustaches? Yes, you're quite right. You've picked me up on the, the next point. <laughs> well, again, the source is late. But when the chief officials of the Spartan state came into office, beginning of each year, they rotated five of them. And the chief one, the one who got the most votes, he announced Spartans. <laughs> Shave your moustaches and obey the laws. The two being, as it were, two halves of the same thing. Shaving your moustaches is a compulsory thing that you have to do. So it's imposed on you, if you like, self-imposed. But it's not natural. It's artificial. In the same way, the laws are things that have been made in the past. They've been handed down and they're working. Otherwise, we change them. So to be a good Spartan, you have to be obedient. You have to be obedient to the laws. It's a law-driven community. Very interesting. And there are stories about how the Spartans respect the law above any human. 
who might give them an order. The law itself was erected as a kind of overarching good. So why shave your moustache? Because that's artificial. So the beard grows, the moustache grows, but don't shave the moustache. And we have a number of sculptures. The most famous is the so-called Leonidas, actually probably not Leonidas. But anyway, about that period, a Parian marble, um, island marble, very beautifully done. And he's got a curly beard, he has no moustache. And that is the Spartan way. To be a good Spartan, you shave your moustache, not your beard. And it's a remarkable fact. Remarkable fact indeed, and very unique to ancient Sparta. Now let's talk a bit about Spartan women. Paul, we've looked a bit at the education of young boys in classical Sparta. What do we know about Education for Spartan girls. Right. The same sources who uh, talk about the educational cycle, dividing it up into two main halves. After the age of 12, 13, it gets tougher. And they talk about some of the exercises, both collective and individual, for example, wrestling or throwing the javelin, but also in a group having a mock fight near a river and so on. The same sorts of things are talked about or said of Spartan girls. Yet, we know that Spartan girls do not leave their home at the age of seven, as the boys did. So they remain with their mothers. But they were expected to develop themselves, to be developed physically. And there was a rationale, whether it's entirely accurate or not, that the stronger you are as a, a female and you uh, give birth, the less likely you are to die because, of course, there was a very high mortality rate. Again, it's thought to be, could be as high as two in three births would result in the death of the mother, but at any rate, very high from combination of all the things that can go wrong with a birth, plus excessive blood loss, there's no way to give them a blood transfusion, puerperal, that is, surrounding the birth infection, absolutely <laughs> regular, which was killing women in this country until the late 19th century, before antiseptics, and then before penicillin, and then all sorts of artificial aids, which in enable women to give birth. Even so, we know there are tragedies, there are problems. So in ancient Sparta, it was thought that the more physically fit a mother was, the less likely she was to die, and therefore she could have more children. So Spartan girls, it's thought, got married a bit later than girls elsewhere who might be married and be reproducing very soon after puberty, which could happen 12, 13, more likely 14. It seems Spartan girls delayed marriage to about 18 to 20, so that they were nearer in age to their husbands, who are, yes, up to 10 years older, but nevertheless, they're not 15 years older than their wives. And it was thought that this was all part of the idea that you have more of a companionate marriage. Now, the oddity of that is the actual ceremony of mm. um, marriage was as brutal, mm. almost, as you can think of, because the 
wife, the bride-to-be, is dressed up pretty much as if she were a man. And there are all sorts of possible psychosexual explanations of why the Spartan males may find, have found it more um, comforting or comfortable that their spouse was as boyish, as boy-like, as masculine as possible, whatever. It was a kind of pseudo-rape, that's to say the husband was supposed to somehow snatch the bride, even though the bride actually had been affianced. So the husband knew which woman he was going to marry and when, but it would somehow involve the seizure and then the consummation, not in the bride's home, which would be a relatively gentle way, or in the husband's home, but somewhere other than that, in some sort of cellar somewhere. I mean, it's all described in a really quite chillingly inhumane almost but certainly not very gentle environment, which seems to me appropriate because Spartan masculinity was not a comfortable, gentle sort of masculinity. It was a kind of brutality. On the other hand, this is, if you like, the irony, the marriage was unusual. That is, the normal relationship between a husband and a Spartan wife would not be one of violence, but partly because they lived apart so much, partly because the wife was relatively so privileged, legally, socially, culturally. She was more equal to her husband. Actually, she probably had quite a good deal compared with the wife of an Athenian, for example. It is a really interesting contrast there that you just described. I mean, you've talked there about that kind of brutish Spartan masculinity. When talking about like Spartan femininity and the education that they receive, let's say when it comes to sex and sexuality, before they get married. Now, of course, you have in mythology the Spartan woman, Helen of Troy. Yeah. Incredibly sexy depictions, the woman who launched a thousand ships and so on. How much of a role model was Helen for young Spartan women? Well, we happen to have a story. It's in Herodotus. It's set some time before his own day, so back in the 6th century, where there's a young girl who's not much to look at. Her parents are rather upset, especially her mother, of course, that she's not much. She's from an aristocratic, a leading Spartan family. So the mother takes her up, and it is up, to a shrine. It's just outside Sparta, a place called Therapne, and it's a sanctuary a religious shrine devoted to Helen and Menelaus, in other words, the Homeric pair, the king and his wife, in the Iliadic uh, epic. And by bringing her there quite regularly, the, the daughter amazingly is transformed from a, an ugly duckling into someone that a king of Sparta would find so desirable that he would be willing to, well, behave rather badly in... in <laughs> in order to get hold of her because she marries someone else and the best friend of that Spartan man is a king of Sparta who fancies this woman and therefore forces his mate to divorce her in order to, and so on. You can see what I'm getting at. The point is that there were, I'm sure, ways in which mothers might go out of their way by praying to, by making offerings to Helen to encourage by transference the beauty, the sexiness of Helen to somehow become imbued 
in their daughter. And we do know that, of course, there are many other gods and goddesses than um, the ones we've mentioned so far. But Helen was a goddess for the Spartans. Artemis was a goddess. Hera, Athena was the state goddess. So there are lots and lots of female divinities that Spartan women, wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, and uh, so on, could look to and pray to and make offerings to. But in terms of sex, of course, the one goddess is Aphrodite. And she has her shrine. She has actually more than one shrine in Sparta. So depending on the age of your daughter, you might take her to the shrine of Helen when she's growing up. When she's pubescent, she's achieved puberty, but she's not yet fully adult. Artemis, who is the goddess of transition between girlhood and womanhood, and then Aphrodite when she gets married, or Athena, or Hera. So there's quite a lot of outlets for religion to affect sexuality. And did non-Spartan sources, did they portray Spartan women as being incredibly sexy? Did they gain a reputation for that? They did, but this is part of the myth-making that is in Sparta. This is the anti-Spartan type of myth, because there's two kinds of non-Spartan myth. One is, everything in Sparta is great. If only we were much more like them, life in my community would be much better. The other one is, thank goodness, we're not like the Spartans. We don't do X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that allegedly Spartan parents automatically did was foreigner comes to Sparta for whatever reason. Of course, that's problematic in itself. Why would a foreigner come to Sparta? And they are offered any virginal or maybe, yes, they must be virginal because they're not yet married, daughters, you know, just as a sort of (laughs) gift. So in other words, Spartan women are so sexually loose, immoral, they'll sleep with anybody. No, indeed. But you also mentioned an important point there, Paul, as we start wrapping up. I mean, was virginity something that the Spartans were quite big on for Spartan women before they got married? Or do we not have that information to hand? Yeah, we don't have that information, but it would be normal, normative, if that had been the case. So... As I say, the tale according to which Spartan girls, unmarried, had sex, therefore lost their virginity before marriage. However, the point, surely, of the tale about how marital relations were originally consummated, i.e. the wedding, implies that is defloration, and that is when the relationship, the man asserts his masculinity, the woman, the female, becomes a woman. So having been non-deflowered, i.e. intact, she then is deflowered and becomes, having been a girl, she becomes a woman, and that's absolutely standard. Greek, both vocabulary and expectation. So I assume that was the case in Sparta, but we actually don't have evidence about that. And one final point on this. We mentioned earlier, we mentioned earlier how in the education of Spartan boys, how maybe there could have been homosexual experimentation occurring as they were growing up. With the girls also having their own education, 
Could there have been something similar yes. in there? It's not, of course, very uh, plausible. And there is a very famous Spartan poet. He's a creator. He's actually an innovator. He's called Alkman. And he wrote what are called maiden songs because they are for girls not yet married but on the cusp, so 1617, they're intact, they're virgins, so they're Parthenoi, and the type of verse, the type of song is called a Parthenion. Well, Altman talks, he makes the girls, as it were, josh each other in a quasi-sexual way, on the one hand implying that what they're all looking for is a suitable husband coming up, so they're nubile. On the other hand, they're kind of challenging each other with, you know, who's the most beautiful amongst themselves? Therefore, it would be perfectly, I think, normal if there were sexual relations. What is not normal, and this is maybe just an invention, because Greek sexuality amongst adolescents and adults was normal, normative in many communities, because Spartans made such a thing of homosexual pairing relationships, adult male with adolescent male, there is a source that says, well, well-bred young women might look to have relationships with suitable virgins, young girls, before they are married, so that there will be homoerotic, homosexual relations between women who may or may not be married, but at any rate they're adults, with adolescent girls. Well, I'm not sure I believe that. In other words, it's sort of saying because the girls were brought up to throw the javelin, to wrestle, to be physical like the boys, well, in the same way, because the boys had homoerotic relationships within their education. So the girls must have had something similar in their education. I personally doubt it. Paul, this has all been really, really interesting. Another of these great aspects of Spartan society and sorting fact from fiction from the evidence we have available. It's really interesting to me, having largely focused on ancient Macedon and Alexander the Great, and obviously his promiscuous dad, Philip, with his <laughs> many, many wives and lovers, yes. and how big polygamy is in Macedon with the Argeid house and the yeah, Argeid kingdom. Yeah. It's interesting how it's completely the opposite in Sparta and many of the other city-states where monogamy is key. Yes. There's one exception which actually relates to the same family situation I was talking about with the young girl, not very attractive, and then grows up to be stunningly beautiful, such that a king wants to get hold of her for his wife. He's already married to someone else. Well, he actually has two wives, and this is uh, unique in all the evidence that one king is recorded as being bigamous. And the reason given is that his first wife was producing no children, so he has special from the officials to take another wife legally with whom he may reproduce a royal line. That line produces eventually Leonidas. And on the other side, the first wife, he goes back, the king, having sired three, four children with the second wife, he goes back or continues with his first wife, who for whatever reason produces, and that is Cleomenes I, major figure of the early 5th century 
century BC, just before Leonidas, who is, um, Leonidas marries Cleomenes' daughter. I mean, just to show you how inbred uh, one of the family lines of the royal houses could be. Absolutely. Well, Paul, on that lovely note, this has been absolutely brilliant. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight quickly about spas and sex and sexuality? Absolutely my pleasure. I'm just going to add one thing, and it's a slightly technical thing. People have doubted whether that homosexual, homoerotic pairing relationship between a young adult male and an adolescent boy was as central as some of us think and as the ancient sources um, represent it. And in support of the view that it was central, I adduce the fact that the Spartans had their own special vocabulary. So, as I mentioned, that sort of relationship, pederasty is what it's called technically in, in Greek, was not unique to Sparta. So, Athens, Thebes, Elis, Corinth, you name it. But only in Sparta did the Spartans give to the two partners, the senior, the junior, a special name different from elsewhere in Greece, it was simply the lover and the beloved. So the active lover, the passive beloved, passive in form, in language, as well as in actuality. The Spartans said, no, you've got on the one hand the inspirer, and then the junior partner is the hearer. Very interesting. I mean, why would you go to the lengths of creating a special, unique local vocabulary if the institution to which you're giving the names was not central? That's my case. Well, your case very much indeed. <laughs> well, there we go. We leave it on that. Thank you Paul, very much. Yeah, as mentioned, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. My pleasure, Tristan, and any time, really. Thank you so much. Well, there you go. There was Professor Paul Cartledge talking all things sex and sexuality in classical Sparta, wrapping up our special Sparta mini-series this December. I hope you enjoyed the episode, that you enjoyed the series. Leave us a comment. Let us know your thoughts. Last thing from me, wherever you get your podcast from, please be sure to follow or to subscribe to The Ancients so that you're notified. You don't miss out when we release new episodes twice every week. But that's enough from me, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.